This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, February the 9th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, it's the weekly news panel. Michelle McQuig, Joyda Gupta, and I talk about some of the top stories of the week, including a peculiarity in the presidential primaries held in Nevada. Yes, there will be some U.S. presidential election talk, but I promise you it's probably going to be a little bit different than the way the rest of the mass media does it. Back in Canada, the federal government held an auto theft summit in Ottawa. What solutions do you have to curb the car thefts in the country? And the city of Vancouver is dealing with what appears to be a rat infestation, specifically around some of their SkyTrain stations. How big a priority should pest control be for a city? Just an FYI, from a technical perspective, having some issues with the closed captioning this morning, so apologies to audience members who are deaf or hard of hearing. By regulation, if we can't get that fixed within a couple of minutes, the show will have to go off the air, so I apologize if that ends up being the case. Let's jump in with the top story of the day. Stats Canada data shows that the Canadian economy added 37,000 jobs in December and the unemployment rate edged down slightly to 5.7%. Here was a number that I thought was really important that I was able to pick out of the data in the last couple of minutes since it dropped. Workers' rage, wait, rages, workers' rages, no, that's what I feel. Workers' wages rose 5.3% from a year ago. So wage compensation is outpacing inflation inflation at the moment. So that's a little sliver of good news, a little teensy tiny sliver of good news for you. On the housing file, a group representing residential builders across Canada want Ottawa to offer a 30-year amortization period for insured mortgages on new homes. Nojud Almaliz has the story. The Canadian Home Builders Association says extending the period an additional five years would help with affordability and spur more construction. Kevin Lee, the group's CEO, says it would bring more first-time home buyers into the market, in turn encouraging developers to build more homes. The association is also recommending setting up an investment tax credit to help the industry become more productive. Housing expert Mike Moffat says he likes that idea, but he says offering a longer mortgage risks boosting demand without addressing the core issues behind the shortage. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimates the country needs to build 5.8 million homes by 2030 to restore affordability. Nujuramli, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Staying in federal politics, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev proposed a new plan for First Nations to collect taxes from companies that operate on their land. Nicole Reese explains. 
Poliev announced what he calls an optional First Nations resource charge alongside First Nations leaders in Vancouver and dubbed it a First Nation-led solution to a made-in-Ottawa problem. He says it would permit First Nations to collect 50% of the federal taxes paid by industrial activities on their land, with industry getting a tax credit in exchange. Poliev has teased the plan before and says he's been holding consultations since January 2023, but the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs say its member First Nations were not consulted on the initiative. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. And one more federal story that intersects with an update from something that I shared with you yesterday. The federal government is criticizing Bell Media after significant job cuts yesterday. Karen Rebo has more. Federal Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange criticized Bell Media for breaking its promise to invest in news after it was granted more than $40 million in annual regulatory relief. That's the same amount the company claims its news division is losing every year. In the past decade, when acquisitions were allowed for those big companies to acquire a television station or radio station, it came with the promise that they would deliver on news content. Still, Bell is blaming its labor cuts on the federal government, saying Ottawa took too long to provide relief for media companies. The CRTC is expected to release final regulations aimed at helping the news industry in the coming months. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Just a few pieces of added context here. Bell had their quarterly investors call yesterday. Uh, the dividend's going up, so investors are getting paid more money quarterly. So that's uh, good news, I suppose, if you own Bell stock. And here's actual sincere added context. Nearly 45 radio stations affected by the closures were purchased by seven small and mid-sized broadcast companies yesterday. So there has been a market response. There are still media companies of the small and mid-size that believe in the value of local radio and that is something that's encouraging there you go i wanted to wrap up on a little bit of sliver of good news there okay over to the daily polls at accessible media on x at accessible media inc on facebook Thursday, you were asked, how are you at balancing work and life? Work-life balance. 12% of you said great. 38% of you said good. So 50% of you are people who need to start giving me some life advice. 25% of you said okay. And 25% of you said bad. Tony writes in over on Facebook, okay, however, the work, life, and studying balance needs work. So there you go, Tony, uh, bringing out something that's really important there, that work is not simply uh, what you do for a job. It involves a lot of things you do that constitute work. Christina comments, working on it, someone named Discoverability chimes in, good, but getting another puppy added more to our plans, our plates than expected. Good thing he is so cute. Uh, Yes, adding a puppy always seems like a great idea on paper and typically is lovely in practice, but it does uh, raise the stakes a little bit of day-to-day living. Today's daily poll is something that will be explored in the news panel in about 40 minutes, but it's worth a robust conversation towards the beginning of the show as well. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, some parts of Vancouver are experiencing rat infestations, specifically around the Burrard uh, Skytrain station. Oh, man. <laughs> some videos popping up on social media that I'm pretty sure were not 
AI generated. Here's the question. How much does the presence of pest influence what city or region you'd live in? Think uh, rodents, insects, other pesky wildlife. You know, if someone's uh, listening to this uh, in Guatemala this morning, you know, there'd be concerns like scorpions. Or if you live somewhere where there's snakes, like Australia, I would consider that to be infestations. If there was a python infestation in my kitchen, I'd have a problem. A lot, a little, or not at all. Alex Smythe, you were once a proud resident of Edmonton, Alberta. Alberta, a province that has a strong policy to keep rats out of the province. How does uh, the, the presence of pests influence where you would live? You know, I, I overall, in terms of like a city and region specifically, not at all. I, I really am not swayed from that regard. Now, it's a very different story if it's like, oh, let's say you're going into a apartment tower. And this is very much known for being cockroach infested Ugh. or rat or mouse infested. That's a very different situation. I do not want to live in a specific building. But if it's just a more broad like neighborhood or uh, like city, I, I'm more inclined to be okay with it. It doesn't bother me as much. I would just be a bit more conscious and and, and uh, kind of proactive in putting out traps or, or deterrence, things like that, to make sure they don't come into my space or my unit. But uh, yeah, as you said, you know, Edmonton always had a very strong uh, approach to dealing with, with pets and stuff. But I mean, there are other uh, kind of issues out in, in, in Edmonton. I remember there was one morning I was driving, there was literally a wolf in, in the morning going to a new development area. Mm, so mm. different types of pests and, and uh, creatures and wildlife you may have to deal with. Um, but, you know, I overall, I, I never really have that much of a, a issue if they're in the area. As long as they're not in my unit, I'm okay. Laura, I'll never forget a couple of years ago, I was at a wedding in New Orleans and we went to what appeared to be a really nice restaurant and there were just visible cockroaches running around. And I was, I kind of went to some locals, what cockroaches, like, what is this? Like in the restaurant, like, how is this a four star, five star place if, if there's, if there's cockroaches everywhere? And they said, Dave, in New Orleans, in New Orleans, wherever you eat or drink, there are going to be cockroaches. And I right away thought to myself, and New Orleans is a place where Dave Brown will never live and may never visit again. Oh, dear. And, you know, that's bringing to mind for me an experience I had last year at a restaurant here in Halifax. I won't name the restaurant, but uh, I had a rat run up to my shoe oh, when I was oh, dining. And, and I will ah. say, I, I am someone who has a ex, an extreme phobia of mice and rodents, and Halifax certainly has its share of those. And, um, you know, I think it's a little bit hardcore if it influences what city you live in or what region. I don't think I'd go that far, but I guess I would fall into the a little category because it certainly is something I think about when I'm renting an apartment or uh, a lot of the older homes here in Halifax, I think about it. Or if I was looking at renting something, say down by the grain elevators, that would be really front of mind for me that there's likely going to be a lot of rodents around and um, you know, bed bugs is the other, Ugh. not to make anyone's skin crawl, it certainly makes my skin <laughs> crawl, but is the other big thing that we have uh, happening here in Halifax, especially over the last few years. But probably the main thing I think about when I think about actual like 
residences, but not on my radar in terms of what city I live in. And same thing when I'm traveling, it's not going to stop me from traveling somewhere. But if I'm reading through reviews on an Airbnb or a hotel, that's the main thing I'm looking for. Is there any sort of infestation of any type? There's a lot of places that I deliberately will not go to for my own personal safety. And I've got a friend who lives in Guatemala who all the time is saying, come on, Dave, come on down. Come see the awesome building and resort that we're making. And then he tells me all the stories about scorpions. And I say, no, thank you. Pass. All right, that's it. That's the Daily Poll. That'll get explored again in the news panel in about 40 minutes or so with Michelle and Joita. In the meantime, you can vote on X at Accessible Media. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Or you can send an email. You have options. It's a buffet of ways to communicate with the show. Feedback at ami.ca. Feedback at ami.ca. That's the email address. Or you can go old school and pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Tell me your pest stories. Tell me about the place that you lived that still gives you the creepy crawlies. Coming up next, the news panel kicks off. Michelle McQuig, Joda Gupta, and I... We'll discuss U.S. presidential politics and some primary results that took place in Nevada this week. A little bit surprising. I I promise you, it's not going to be this earnest, sincere conversation about the preposterousness of American politics. But there's something that's worth exploring. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at AMIplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. Let's welcome the panelists into the show, saying good morning to Joita Gupta. Hello, Joita. Hey, Dave. Good morning. And hello to Michelle McQuig. Good morning, everybody. All righty. Let's jump right into business here. Something weird happened this week in American politics. Surprise, surprise. Something weird happens every week in American politics. But specifically... The state of Nevada held their presidential primaries. The Republican ballot had a surprising winner. None of the above. None of the above beat Nikki Haley by 33 points. The real weirdness? The ballot didn't even count. There was a caucus held yesterday, and Donald Trump overwhelmingly won that caucus. Here's the real weirdness. Republicans passed their own regulations that said candidates could either be on the primary ballot or part of the caucuses, kind of um, leaving candidates with sort of a terrible choice and making another weird checkmark for American democracy. Michelle, I know sometimes y'all get cranky with me when I talk about, oh, democracy's hard. Are they making it too hard? But honest to goodness, what's the point of having a performative vote if it doesn't count? I I am long past the time of even trying to guess 
or, or assume any logic behind the American Electoral College system or their voting processes. If there is rationale, and I'm sure there is, I am not aware of it and I don't get it. People have tried to explain and it's just over my head and I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm never going to understand how or why things get done the way they do over there. And this is a great example. I'm with you, Dave. I'm a little baffled as to why this is an option. I don't know what this accomplishes. I would genuinely love for someone to explain to me why it's being done this way, but I cannot imagine uh, that it's an efficient system. I can't even imagine the cost of it. I'm reminded of a, a Canadian situation in which um, a premier merely speculating about the possibility of an election cost $2 million to that province. Uh, New Brunswick. That's, that's, that's New Brunswick, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. So I cannot even imagine what actually running an optional ballot would cost if mere speculation can run two million bucks. So I don't know. I, I I'm baffled, and in in a way, this outcome feels kind of karmic. I don't know. It, it I, I find it hilarious as a sort of a funny kind of button on, on an issue that I find baffling. <laughs> let me let me offer you a little bit of context here, Michelle. Nevada had been a caucus primary state for quite some time. A few years ago the state legislature decided to make it a primary state, and then the Republican Party decided, well, we'll still do this primary, we'll make it non-binding and introduce our own caucus. So there's actually been a little bit of history here in the last three or four years in the way that Americans are talking about electoral reform and counting votes that ended up influencing why they did it this way this time around. But Joita, even with that historical context, like I'm, my head is just spinning. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Like, like, like democracy should not be an exercise in futility. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be an exercise in comprehension, uh, but that's besides the point. <laughs> I like that too. Right on. <laughs> Truly. Um, but I think the, it doesn't really, on the surface of it, seem to have a point. Uh, state law requires or mandates the primaries, so that's why they ran the primaries, but... <clears throat> The state Republican Party has all of these Trump supporters, and they have opted to go with the caucus, which is a bit like a lengthy nomination uh, meeting. And Nikki Haley decided that she's not going to participate in the caucus because uh, from Nikki Haley's perspective, the fix was in. Uh, this was going to be a clear victory for Donald Trump, and she didn't want to cough up $55,000 only to... Uh, basically not even have a chance at victory. So she opted not to participate in the caucuses, um, but also then ends up making what some would argue a, a tactical mistake by continuing to um, proceed with the primary without actually campaigning. I mean, she could have won the primary vote. Uh, it, made, it wouldn't have meant that she would have gotten any delegates elected, but it could have been a moral victory. It it could have been a, a good PR move. But instead, by leaving her name on the ballot and not campaigning, she ends up with um, this really startling result where she's lost to none of the above. Um, yeah. Thus Humiliating. Whole Humiliating. Yeah, it's basically Utterly. embarrassing yeah. for Completely embarrassing for her. But to go back to your question, what is the point? Well, I think that's beyond my pay grade because I think it truly baffles me as to why when there is an agreed upon process to elect delegates, that being the primary, why would you go off and do your own thing? That is the eternal question and I. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, it, it speaks to sort of where, where democratic structures in the United States are uh, are, are getting fuzzier and fuzzier uh, by the day. OK, 
I do want to explore the idea of none of the above on the ballot, though. <laughs> but, no, I, I mean this like I mean this like no, sincerely, it's, it's like, like through it's... the lens of absurdity. But like, but there's something about it that really appealed to me the second that I heard about it this week. That none of the above was actively on the ballot. That you could check the box to say none of the above, not spoil the ballot, not mismark the ballot. You could vote for none of the above, and Joita. I find it appealing, and I wonder if none of the above should be available on every single electoral ballot, and it should be counted as such. No, I don't. I'm not. Oh, I'm not going oh, for it at all. Party pooper. No, no, no. Because I mean, on the surface, it sounds really cute and kind of exciting to be able to say none of the above, but. We do have the option, as you noted, to spoil a ballot if you really don't want to uh, be a part of the process. Uh, In fact, you know, one could even argue that if you uh, live in a democracy and you don't like any of the candidates, then you should run yourself. But that's besides the point. I mean, in the case of the primaries and Nevada, what we see happening with Nikki Haley is kind of a it's kind of it, it it causes your eyebrows to, eyebrows to shoot up but it didn't really have too many consequences beyond the embarrassment that the haley campaign has to deal with we weren't actually using it to elect a delegate but imagine if you were actually using it to elect a delegate or an mp or somebody else and the result you ended up with with was none of the above what do you do then do you empty have a seat. second election empty seat well i mean i don't think that's really helpful to the democratic process right i mean the bottom line is if you're unhappy with the candidates on paper, then and I and I sort of I, I, I kind of threw that out there, but I do actually think that if you're genuinely unhappy with uh, with who is being on who is represented on the ballot, then in a democracy you have the option to try and put yourself on the ballot or to organize put on a grassroots level to elect a candidate to to put a delegate you know, to find a, a candidate that you could get behind. That's the whole point of the, the democratic process. But I'm not really com- comfortable or confident with a situation where we say none of the above, because it does seem like a a bit of an abdication of responsibility when we think about the democratic process and the part that each of us plays in that process as individuals. Can I, ju- can I jump in with something relevant here? Please. In Canada, someone took Joita up on that suggestion and went and founded a party called Zed, none of the above expressly for the purpose of appearing as a none of the above option at the bottom of the ballot. Someone went and did that and they get votes. And this is, I think, kind of, first of all, someone acted on that idea. But secondly, I think there is an appetite out there for that option. So I kind of land somewhere in between Joita and Dave on this and that I, I do think if spoiling your ballot is a valid mechanism, which it absolutely is, I, I, I personally have the view that having the capacity to cast a vote for no, I don't want to spoil this ballot. I just want to express my distaste for any of the above candidates. Mm-hmm. I think that's a bit of a valid take. And and as such, I don't, I don't know how that would work. I, I, I where Where I'm lost a little bit and join you more, Joita, is... How would that actually work out in practical terms once the election is over? May and how I? would that translate? May I? You pl- please, by all means. Em- empty seat, no representative. One year later, another by-election. None of the candidates who are on the ballot are allowed to run again. Mm-mm. Again, I, I mean, that's... You, you got beat by none of the above. You got beat by none of the above. The constituents do not want to vote for you. You're not allowed I mean, back fair. on the ballot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part okay. of the problem is also our, our our system, right? I mean, there's this long debate between first past the post and strategic 
like voting um so i mean there's there's a whole lot of reasons that come into play and i'm not sure that embracing an none of the above option is going to simplify that conversation in canada at least oh i mean if you but want I to will, talk about electoral I, reform like i'm i'm all here for proportional representation our, our system uh, our system is maybe marginally better than the american system but it ain't marginally. much better <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I want to say, too, in response to Joita's point, is that I take the spirit in which it's meant entirely. And you're right. That is how the system is intended to function. But cost joining a campaign is prohibitively expensive. So not just anyone can, can do, do it, that. Yeah. 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 Time is money, too. Like like the, the time it yeah. takes is it requires a lot. You, it, w it would be very difficult to have a full time job that with responsibilities like and even outside responsibilities like family, friends, community, et cetera, and run for political office. But I, I, I know that this is framed in absurdism, but I'm also standing kind of absolutist on this. I just think there are so many people who are not participating in the democratic process. And I think that if you told them you can come here and write none of the above and actually end up influencing what the composition of your provincial legislature or national parliament looks like, I think there's merit. I Because it, it speaks to not just an apathy, but dissatisfaction that exists yes. inside the way people look at politics. A hundred percent. And anecdotally, most elections I hear some variation on, I don't like any of these people or any of these parties. I don't want to vote for any of these. So I think that sentiment is real. And I think they're Ideally, I would love to see a way to try and harness that sentiment out there and that practical reality for a lot of people is that there, there's broad dissatisfaction with the options available. All right, here's where I give you guys the option to go yes or no, and you can throw this right back in my face. Joita, dare we talk about the prospect of Donald Trump uh, winning the general election in the United States later this year? Because it's very clear that he's going to win the Republican nomination. Yeah, I think that he's he's likely going to win the Republican nomination. But then again, he's got all these legal woes at the same time. So who's to say that he's not going to end up in, in jail? And uh, that has ramifications as well. Uh, it's too early to say whether he would actually win. Uh, but again, uh, incumbents are known to do well in elections when the economy is doing well. And there are signs to show that the American economy is bouncing back. Uh, I don't think you can entirely count out Joe Biden. So I can't really say one way or the other with any certainty whether Donald Trump is going to win, but um, you can't rule him out. I mean, he might win and get and get uh, convicted and of federal yeah. and state crimes. Yeah. Like, that's a definite yeah. possibility. Yeah. And the Washington, definitely. the Washington District Court this week said he does not have presidential immunity for some of the uh, accused crimes that he committed between November 2020 and January 2021. Mm -hmm. Michelle, Joita wanted to grapple with that a little bit. Do you? Well, there's wants and should. Um... <laughs> I think I think we kind of can't avoid it. The, the fact is, he absolutely is going to win the Republican nomination, and he stands a 50-50 chance, at the very least, of being reelected. So I feel like we can't really ignore the issue and need to at least face up to it at some point. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the appetite is there <laughs> yeah, to dive back it, in. <laughs> it means that in February of 2024, perhaps a pin can go in that one uh, until, yeah. until absolutely yeah, I, I like necessary. Because there are no winners when you talk about President Donald Trump. Okay, let's... Uh, Let's put that one to bed. Coming up after the break, Canadian politics. The federal government held an auto theft summit in Ottawa yesterday. What kind of solutions do you have? 
that could curb car thefts in the country because they are on the rise. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta as part of the news panel. Let's address the next topic. The federal government convened an auto theft summit in Ottawa yesterday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explained why the summit matters. So we're convening this summit because Canadians need serious action. A catchy slogan won't stop auto theft. A two-minute YouTube video won't disrupt organized crime. Cracking down on auto theft means bringing law enforcement, border services, port authorities, car makers, and insurance companies together. The federal government says there's an estimated 90,000 cars stolen in Canada each year, and those numbers have proportionally been on the rise in the last few years. Joetta, why'd this topic grind your gears? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, on the surface, it's it's not a topic that would have piqued my interest, but I think uh, because it comes off as a, a fairly straightforward law and order issue and a nonpartisan issue at that, I mean, it's hard to say anyone would be in support uh, of of car thievery. But I think there's a couple of issues that come into play here. Uh, <laughs> that, would be, that would be a controversial, yeah, yeah. that would be that a would controversial be a devil's con advocate take yeah. uh, this morning. No, yes. no, I'm here yes. for car theft. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think there's a couple of things here. As you know, as you noted, uh, about 90,000 vehicles are stolen every year, and that number is on the rise in Ontario and Quebec uh, just in the last year. 2022 to 23, that number shot up by 50%, I believe. And in Toronto, in the last decade, car theft has gone up by 300%. Um, and when you factor in the context, when you take into the context, which is that buying a car has become that much more expensive. Um, I remember reading a study some time back that said a new car is going to cost you around $60,000. Um, and a used car can cost you still quite a bit more, like about twenty-five to 30000 depending on the age of the car. Um, this has tremendous repercussions. And granted, the three of us aren't really big on driving, but it is an issue that impacts the disability community. There are a lot of people who who, who rely on having a vehicle um, and who still require having a car. So I think it is a worth considering uh, why this is on the rise, what the political implications are. It's very hard to talk about this issue without considering that an election is around the corner and everyone is gearing mm -hmm. up for that. And then having maybe a discussion about some of the solutions is not a miss either. Yeah. Michelle, let's start with the focus. You and I talked about this the day after it was announced uh, when yeah. the federal government, after the cabinet retreat, said there is going to be a summit all about auto theft and you, the three of us are oftentimes talking about you have to look at the picture of the Canadian life experience holistically 
But anytime there's an increase in theft, especially major theft, it speaks to what some folks have perceived as sort of a social decay or a worsening of the fabric in the country. So to me, it makes sense to bring people together to talk about something that impacted 90,000 people directly last year and probably impacted hundreds of thousands of people indirectly. It makes sense that the federal government would take a little bit of time to talk about this. I think so, yeah. And, and it touches on the other thing that we often circle around on this panel, and that's jurisdiction, and that it is, it does make sense for this government to take charge of getting everyone that needs to be in the room on this one at the table. Uh, he, the Prime Minister mentioned the C, uh, Canadian, CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency. Uh, he mentioned law enforcement. Obviously, there's an RCMP component to all that. Um, there are there is, Federal leadership makes sense, and I think it also makes some sense for this government to do something that we don't often see and then for them to try and get out ahead of an issue. We, uh, you probably remember, Dave, on that segment, we, there was a certain amount of surprise from both of us. Just mm -hmm. to, okay, mm -hmm. now we're talking about auto thefts. All right, that, that's this is a thing that's just happened. But I think that that is something that is probably pretty deliberate. We weren't talking a lot about auto thefts. Now we are. There is a lot of data to suggest that auto thefts have gone up over the course of this government's specific tenure. Um, whether that results in or is if it's fair to then blame the government for said increase, as we're seeing happening in some quarters, is a different question. And I think we'll probably get to that. But it makes, I think, some political sense. Um, and practical sense for the government to try and get out of this one and take the lead. Juita, you raised it, but what's your reaction to the focus on the issue? It's not surprising. As I said, with an election looming, uh, what people are really trying to do, whether it's the federal liberals or the conserv federal conservatives, is court the 905 area or yes. other parts of the country, the, the demographic that is deeply reliant on cars. Um, and whether it's the federal liberals saying, we understand this is an issue for you, it has ramifications for your families and your car is getting stolen, we are behind this issue 100%. Or if it's Pierre Poilier returning out and saying, look, I mean, here's the federal government being incompetent again, and look how this issue has gotten so much worse on their watch. Um, and, you know, they've kind of, the, the federal conservatives have traditionally lent, lent into the into these law and order type of issues. I think it, it uh, you'll excuse the cynicism, but I think why are we talking about this right now probably has a lot more to do with the impending elections than it does to really have, you know, I mean, I think car thefts have been an issue for a very long time. The numbers kind of bear that out. If you think about 90,000 cars being stolen every year, the numbers going up, everybody knows this. 300 percent increase in Toronto in the last decade. Why were we not talking about this before? Why now? Why is this the moment? And I think it's because the election's coming along coming along and everybody yeah. in there is is trying to court that demographic because a lot of studies have shown that if you can succeed in courting the 905 demographic near the GTA and other select areas, it generally predicts success in in upcoming elections. I think really it is it is more a response to the fact that there's an election than anything else. Michelle, I have oftentimes talked about the tangibility of politics, especially in the last six to 12 months, that people think there are these tangible issues that you can put your finger on, and hence the blaming and the campaigning and everything around it. But I did think that what came out of yesterday was quite a bit of thoughtful conversation, which I'm never going to criticize. I'm with you. And, and I thought even some of the concrete measures seemed a pretty, not just concrete, but, but feasible and attainable. We're talking about like some small amendments to the criminal code to catch up to current technology. I'm with you, Dave. A lot of the conversations, hearing people in the room from, from, from the insurance world, from 
the, from the, the shipping world, tracking port activity, all of these things seem to be sent steps that make a lot of sense and are actually kind of relatable. And I don't think we see this very often. So that's kind of why I find this interesting is because we gripe on this panel and outside of it about, you know, governments being too abstract and all this airy-fairy pie-in-the-sky talk about things. Right here is an example of of something much more tangible and concrete playing out in a reasonable time frame. This summit was announced, what, less than a month ago, and now it's happened and it's done and it seems to have brought about some results. So I, I find that kind of refreshing, honestly. Yeah, so you, <laughs> Michelle, you mentioned the notion of better tracking of cargo leaving ports because that's been one mm -hmm. of the criticisms that cars are being stolen in the GTA or Montreal area and being shipped out to ports and then shipped out of the country and that Canada had become a hub for the export the export of stolen vehicles there's there was some talk of organized crime which was which was yes. interesting yep. there was there was conversation about stiffer penalties inside the criminal code mm -hmm. and that is something that conservative leader Pierre Polyev has talked about as well saying a minimum three-year sentence for someone who's a repeat car thief but there was the conversation about technology Joita which I mm -hmm. thought was fascinating in the era of keyless entry and keyless ignitions that there is an element where car manufacturers and law enforcement have not been able to keep up with the idea of hacking. People being no. people being able to hack their way into a car and hack it started. No more ripping wires out from underneath the dashboard to hotwire a car or smashing a window. People are using telephones. So to me, in the solutions that were talked about yesterday that I thought were quite pragmatic, I, I thought that jumped out to me, a robust conversation yeah. about how cars yeah. have evolved and how car thievery has evolved with it and perhaps law enforcement and insurance and other forms of protection have not managed to keep up. No, well, that's often the case. And I think it is something of a call to action for car manufacturers to recognize that people have found new and innovative ways to hack into systems and to steal cars. And uh, there is going to be some pressure put, understandably, to try and bring some of the security measures that are built into vehicles up to snuff. Uh, certainly not, not a bad solution there, but also maybe improving security at uh, at ports, and I'm not just talking about you know improving cameras and scanning shipping containers, and uh, you know looking at other mechanisms by which you can actually um, monitor what cars are being shipped out from from local ports, but also looking at um, you know coordinating different aspects of law enforcement, whether it's the RCMP, border control, port controls, making sure there's better coordination there, rooting out corruption, uh, because you know there's a, an element of that as well. Oh, certainly, uh, certainly. Uh, but but I think your point about sentencing is a really good one because I had not known prior to investigating this that the minimum sentence for someone who is uh, charged with car thievery is actually about six months, which is nothing. So, uh, you know, really looking at maybe a tougher sentence, which is something that Pierre Polyever is certainly getting behind uh, three years, and if not more, uh, is a way to to try and act as a bit of a deterrent. Uh, but beyond that, I think, yes, the bulk of the responsibility here does lie with um, car manufacturers, bearing in mind that uh, as, you know, as, as technology has become more sophisticated, we often find that people are able to find workarounds. We often see that, you know, the, the hacking becomes more sophisticated as well. And so you have to kind of run to keep up with that. And there is a certain amount of, of responsibility that car manufacturers themselves have in that whole situation. The uh, three of us are older millennials. Um Y'all rem remember in the 1990s when that device, the club, 
came out with just a metal locking mechanism. Yes, I do. Oh my goodness. A metal locking mechanism <laughs> that you put over the wheel of the car. I oh, wonder, yeah. I, guys, I wonder if the club is coming back. That's hilarious. <laughs> or if someone's working um, on your virtual club, the club app yeah, right now. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. no apps. So we got to get away from the hacking. By the way, Anastasia in the control room just said the club is making a comeback. People are installing it's clubs back on their steering wheel. Amazing. Yeah. I love this. I totally remember oh, this. Geez. Wow. You know, yeah, new, it was a blast from the past. New technology and better tracking at ports and uh, keyless entry. You know what? You can't beat a metal and your club. 90s throwback. A <laughs> metal right. club. Yeah. And you've got a Chia Pet in your car, too, and you're going to be all set. Okay, let's uh, put this get one. Tamagotchi in your pocket. Le yeah. Le <laughs> all right, let's pump the brakes on this one. Coming up after wow, the break, wow. the city of Vancouver is dealing with a apparent rat infestation. How big a priority should pest control be for a city? There's a certain obviousness to that, but it's worth a bit of, as they say in journalism, de rigueur. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck, and it might make your skin crawl just a teensy bit. The city of Vancouver is dealing with what seems like an increase in rats. Video popped up on social media that showed a significant infestation around the Burrard Skytrain station downtown. Pest control experts are also reporting an increase in residential calls. Michelle, what strikes you about this issue? Oh, um... <laughs> The collective groan. <laughs> so uh, it's not just my neat freaky self that makes me want to climb onto the highest possible surface, even at the mention of rats. <laughs> um, I, I just, I, I, I barely can here, but I do think this is interesting. There are shifts in, in the in patterns for these things. Um, the pandemic, I, I, funnily enough, a release came in that I was reading over the commercial break with a place line of Toronto that I don't love that was talking about all about how the pandemic changed migratory patterns for rats because a lot of them were concentrated in downtown areas with lots of restaurants and whatnot. When those shut down, they moved to find different food sources and have now gotten established in lots of residential suburban communities so far from where they typically go. Um, and this Vancouver situation, of course, is a very particularly high profile one because of where it happened and how it looked. <sighs> but it's symptomatic, I think, of something that cities are going to need to deal with. Patterns have changed. Rats are destructive. There are so many issues linked to um, rat populations around health and and, and, and infrastructure. And, and, and Oh, the other factor I want to mention that makes this relevant right now is it's housing development. We talk about building housing, but rat populations do set up in building development areas a lot mm -hmm. of the time. So this is going to have to be an active priority, I think, for people moving forward. 
but I don't think it necessarily has been. So that's kind of why I brought it here. Yeah, rats rats carry Thanks. fleas, and fleas have only yeah. caused a couple plagues in you know human history. So you know, rats, yeah. you know, a little bit of an issue. Not just not just like kind of gross looking. Um, also, yeah. you know, there there are bigger mm -hmm. impacts here. So Joita Michelle laid out a mm -hmm. couple of the theories there that building development, uh, the pandemic, migratory patterns are being put forward for what appears to be why rat pet populations are up. There is specifically in Vancouver a conversation about a bylaw that was recently passed that mm -hmm. banned a particular kind of rat poison, which yes. which was very effective at killing rats, but also had a lot of other negative impacts uh, on other forms of uh, wildlife. So, mm -hmm. Joita, which of these uh, theories do you find more convincing or do you want to go off the table? Well, I think the, um, at least in Vancouver, the rat poison theory is probably the most convincing. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, in banning that particular uh, type of poison, it has caused the rat population to skyrocket um, there. And that's sort of the, the tricky public health issues that one has to deal with. The poison is supposed to be very dangerous to other animals, including pets. Uh, so how do you balance that with trying to control the rat population, I mean, which is not, you can hear about rats in subways and people in residences, uh, you know, and the, I, you've, you've already set out the fact that a large rat population carries with it the risk of disease and, you know, obviously a poor quality of life. So I think the Vancouver issue is a little, is is quite a bit more, is is interesting for me because it kind of speaks to this competing priority in public health. Uh, where you want to eliminate the 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 increase in the rat population, but you also have to then start to think through the implications. If you just start to, if you reintroduce the poison, what does that mean for people's pets and other wildlife and animals being affected by it? Is there another is there another solution? Mm. Michelle, you laid out a couple of the theories. I uh, filled in a few more gaps. Do you find mm -hmm. any of them particularly convincing? I I am definitely struck by the. The rat poison one for Vancouver specifically is interesting. I do see some merit in the pandemic theory and the way that the species had to adapt in order to survive there. Uh, there is also a school of thought around this that I find extremely concerning because it's not going to go away. And that is the theory that climate change is also playing a role in this and making mm. it easier for rats to, to to procreate and move around and all these things. And of course, we know uh, that's not going anywhere anytime soon. So this is all part of why I, I just... I, I, I absolutely recognize this is driven by my own <laughs> phobia of these things, but I, I do think that there is a rising impetus for people to pay attention to this kind of issue and maybe give it some more deliberate thought than we heard about discussed before. Um, options are limited yeah, in that yeah. once, once, once a rat population is established, it's pretty hard to root it out forever. And the reason a province like Alberta has been able to maintain its rat-free status, which is kind of fascinating on its own, is because they were really proactive and got ahead of that problem before mm -hmm. the rats could establish a foothold in the province. So I don't think those sorts of measures are, are I don't think we have, need to have, you know, whole conversations around re reinventing the wheel. But I do think that there are more factors that may, are making this a more urgent issue than it perhaps might have been. Michelle, where does the rat but fear also, come from? But also, I'm, does... I'm just totally spooked. So that, that's <laughs> Michelle, where, where does the rat, uh, not, not to play therapist here, but where does the rat fear come from? Was it the last chapter of 1984? That sure did not help. It absolutely did not help. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm pest and, and, and 
I'm a neat freak and I'm pest phobic. So yeah, I, you know, I, I <laughs> it's do, a bad combo. I do, I do wonder where there's maybe a bit of a disability lens on that. I've oftentimes told people if they're in my apartment, like if you see bugs or you see something that might be a pest, I need you to tell me because I might yeah, not so see it. Yeah, so I can it. leave the premises immediately. Yeah. Well, look, I can leave the, I, yeah, I can well. leave the premise, I can leave the premises immediately, but you need to also like understand that <sighs> maybe there's a problem here that I need to deal with that I'm not yeah. going to see otherwise. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Uh, but also, you know, bearing in mind that there are very harsh treatments for a lot of these, and that can be harmful to some people, especially, uh, you know, people with respiratory issues mm -hmm. or other kinds of yeah. chemical sensitivities, right? So there's a, these are complex issues. Often when you're thinking about any kind of pest control, uh, you're asked to prepare your apartments. You know, if you think about spraying for bugs, for example, they'll tell you to empty out your cabinets, and there's a disability issue there if you have a back oh, yeah. problem. Yeah. You're oh, not yeah. able to do that. So... Uh, yeah, I think it, the two issues do intersect in, in significant ways. Um, but I think it's hard to say that any of us would have been, like, it's hard to emulate Alberta as an example. It's a really good yeah. example where someone really got out in front of the problem and said, we're going to deal with rats, which are an invasive species before they become a problem. I don't know if Vancouver or other cities can really go back to square one and implement some of those strategies. But I think I don't think there so. is something to be said for coordinated pest control. Often in places uh, like Toronto, for example, pest control is the responsibility of individual property owners. Um, so whether it's a restaurant owner and, you know, they have to comply with health and safety or if it's uh, landlords, residential units, they're supposed to comply with municipal property standards. But the who's actually paying for that is is the individual a property owner, uh, they have they do have municipal bylaws that require that they keep apartments in a good state of cleanliness and um, health and safety concerns are are taken seriously, including pest management. But maybe we do need to have a a conversation. Um, maybe it's on the municipal level, maybe it's on the provincial level about how we coordinate pest control efforts. Uh, particularly, um, I mean, there's some consistency when we talk about food preparation areas and hospitals, but maybe we need to have a chat about public transit, which is a really big, uh, yes. big way in which uh, pest control measures are, uh, where, which is a really big way in which pests basically travel from one part of the city to the next. So maybe there needs to be more of a focus on, on pest control in public transit areas. Um, uh, so and that yeah, that, that came was... that came up in France with the bed bug outbreaks last year yes. because there was a lot yeah. of bed bugs being detected on uh, public transit in Paris and the city of Paris actively had to go out and say we are going to start attacking the bed bug problem on public transit. So so there is there is precedent for this. Yeah. And and I mean public transit is something that you know partly it's paid for by user fees but it's also partly uh paid for by through public dollars so maybe bearing in mind the health implications bearing the mind in mind that you know people often bring back whether you know pests having used public transit and we want people to use public transit given how much given you know the climate change that we've just talked about and the reduced carbon footprint associated with transit use, if we want to make it an attractive alternative to everybody jumping in their cars and driving everywhere, then maybe we should also make it a 
rat-free alternatives. Yeah. So well, you, you, there's some, there's some good arguments. You there. guys both raised Alberta. I think it's worth explaining here. Alberta has a zero tolerance policy for rats that goes back a long ways, but still yeah. actively has to be engaged with in real time. There are all mm -hmm. kinds of shipping containers and trucks that pass through Alberta. There is a zero tolerance for rats. They are killed and exterminated on the spot, on site. They still pay yep. people to patrol the border with Saskatchewan yeah. to keep rats out of the province, right? Like, like this isn't some like little miracle. It wasn't some magic no. wand they waved. No, it was a no, concerted no, no. effort, right? Now, I don't know what appetite there is in Vancouver for a rat cull, but like, you know, that might be what it takes. But anytime you use the word cull, everyone gets cranky, just like the coyote cull in Stanley Park a couple years ago. We let well, the coyotes win, by the way. I still say we let the coyotes <laughs> win. Michelle? I, I think like, I, I think what you said is, is relevant in that I think the ship has sailed. I think full-on culls like that aren't necessarily feasible because rats get established so quickly and so easily. And that was the whole point of the Alberta program. I actually did some reading on it yesterday. It was kind of interesting, uh, including the fun fact that a lot of the propaganda they put out to help engage the public in this exterminating rats was exactly linked to communist ideology because it was post-war. It was immediately, it was like 1950. Anyway, um, yeah, they, their their big thing was we have we have geographic protections on the northern, eastern, and southern borders, but from the west, sorry, reverse, western border is protected, but from the east where Saskatchewan lies is that's where we're vulnerable to rats. They set up like two hundred and fifty exterminating officers mm -hmm, around that border. Mm -hmm. Their their whole point was to get rid of this and prevent them from even getting established, and that that's where I think that ship has sailed. Rat populations are established in like most cities mm. I can think of, but it's it's the changing patterns that I think trouble me, and that and that make me wonder if our existing systems are equipped to deal with things changing in the way they have. You know what the answer is here? We go back to the European model, the German model, and we breed about a million schnauzers, and we let them loose in the city. They are ratters by nature. That's what they were bred to do, kill rats. So we breed about 100,000, even up to a million schnauzers, and we let them <laughs> run wild through the streets of Vancouver, taking care of the rats, and then we can deal with the schnauzer problem later. People love schnauzers. Yeah, People I would adopt. adopt I would adopt one. I would adopt. I would adopt a, 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 a civic hero, Schnauzer. All right, guys, got to right? be got to got to be quick. Got to be quick on the way out of here, Michelle. You posed this question in the email thread that pretty much became the crux of the daily poll today at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. How much could pest control impact where you choose to live? A little, a lot, or not at all? What do you say, Joita? A lot, a lot. It's a big one. Michelle, a whole lot. Yeah, that's where I land too. I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. live in some kind of libertarian pest city. I, you know, like, yeah, no. I, I we, no. can't, we can't. You know, we can't do. We can't do that one. I don't like that one. Uh, Hard no. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you both for this, uh, Michelle. Your level of excitement for the Super Bowl. Oh, the opposite of the of the pest control at zero. Okay, so we're, I, we're, I forgot it was I forgot it was happening. We're at zero, so so Usher's not going to do it. Nor will Reba <laughs> McIntyre singing the national anthem. Joita, your level of excitement for the Super Bowl on Sunday? Oh, it's on Sunday, is it? Um, I had no yeah, idea right? until you just but mentioned that. Me. So.
Yeah. All right, well, I'll be on vacation next week, so have fun talking to Alex Smythe. Uh, there's no correlation between me taking Monday off and the Super Bowl. Guys, have a, gr- have a great weekend. Is, yeah. Even though it happens every year, it's the weirdest thing. Not last year. Alex Smythe beat, beat, me, beat me in for the vacation request, so I had to work last Super Bowl Monday. Ooh, well played, Alex. Uh, oh. Joey, have a nice weekend. Thank you. Michelle, you have a nice weekend, too. You, too. Take care and enjoy vacation. Thank you very much. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Joey Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. You can find that show weekend at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up after the break, the Super Bowl enthusiasm finally boils over. I've been containing myself all week. So it starts with sincere, earnest sports talk and will devolve from there. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, February the 9th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, it's White Cane Week. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access recommends their list of memoirs about living with vision loss. And... Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, 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 Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, 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 Bowl. It's happening on Sunday. There'll be lots of Super Bowl talk, the game, the snacks, the halftime show. And that all begins right now with Brock Richardson and Alex Smythe in the sports chat. The San Francisco 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs play this Sunday evening, 6.30 p.m. Eastern time is the kickoff. Gentlemen, sometimes the best way to talk about the game is through the way that Las Vegas is envisioning the game. There are a bunch of different bets that people can make called prop bets that are binary. It's yes or no, over or under. And that can sometimes lend to previewing the proceedings. So, gentlemen, I've put together a couple of questions here that might tell the story of the game. Brock, first and foremost, will there be a missed field goal, yes or no? No. Deep, yeah. I think you've got I think you've got both kickers know exactly what they're going to do. No, I don't think there's going to be a missed field goal. Alex, will there be a missed field goal? Yes, and I'm going to go further and say I'm going to predict that San Francisco is going to miss the field goal and it's going to disrupt Kyle Shanahan's plans on offense going forward after that. I am right there with you, Alex. I believe that rookie kicker Jake Moody for San Francisco will miss a field goal. He's already missed two in the playoffs. He missed a couple big ones during the season as well. I believe he will be missing a field goal on Sunday. And who knows, maybe uh, Harrison Butker for uh, Kansas City might miss one as well. All right, cannot talk about football these days without talking about Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Alex, will he score a touchdown on Sunday, yes or no? 
Yes, he will, because he's too dynamic in the middle of the field. He has a way of disappearing in defenses and coverage. He is scoring a touchdown. Alex, I agree with you that he's scoring a touchdown, but I believe he's going to have a tough day. The matchup with Fred Warner, the middle linebacker for San Francisco, is going to be a tough one for him. Warner is very fast, very strong, and has the size to play alongside Travis Kelsey. So I believe it's one of these situations where he might not make a gargantuan impact through the game as a whole. But I do believe he will score a touchdown because that's the way the storytellers want it to go. Brock, will Travis Kelsey score a touchdown on Sunday? Yes, I think Patrick Mahomes will do everything in his power to make sure that he gets at least one. All right, I like that. Okay, so we're in agreement there. We'll, we'll mark that bet down across the, across the three of us. Will 49ers running back Christian McCaffrey score a touchdown? He scored a touchdown in both playoff games this year and scored a whole boatload during the regular season. Brock, will Christian McCaffrey score a touchdown, whether it be rushing or receiving? Yes, and it will probably be. I'm going to even take it a step further, and I'm going to say it'll be one of each. I think he's going to score more, more than one. I think he's very good in both rushing and receiving. So, yes, I'm going to go with two, one of each um, in that situation. A double-double there. I like that one. Alex, will Christian McCaffrey score a touchdown on Sunday? Yes, he will, and I, I think he's going to be. it's going to be a receiving touchdown because he's just so good in space, and once all the other receivers are engaged, he is a great option coming out of the backfield. Yeah, so dynamic, so dynamic, and uh, you know he's still licking his wounds from not winning in 2020, so he'll be looking to uh, make a point. All right, the over-under for total turnovers, fumbles, and interceptions for both teams is 2.5. Alex, over or under? I'm going to go slightly under. I think it's going to be two turnovers. I think it's going to be one from each team. So under for me. Yeah, Patrick Mahomes, the Kansas City quarterback, has yet to throw an interception during the course of the playoffs. He's been locked in in terms of his efficiency on the field. So I'm not sure that he's going to turn the ball over. But I could see somebody on uh, Kansas City fumbling once or twice. And I think that Kansas City's defense is going to eat San Francisco quarterback Brock Purdy alive. I see him throwing at least two interceptions, so I'm going over. Brock, over or under, total turnovers, 2.5. I'm going to go over, and I'm going to say that I think all of the turnovers are going to come from uh, San Francisco. I think they're going to get three. Oh, boy. All right. Okay. I think this one, Brock, might actually lead into what you were saying right there. Will there be a lead of over 14.5 points? Will the biggest lead of the game be over 14.5 points, yes or no? Uh, yes, I think it will be more than uh, 14 points. I think it speaks to exactly what you just sort of mentioned. If I'm saying that San Francisco is going to turn the ball over uh, two or three times, then yes, I believe that that Kansas City is going to capitalize on that. I would say at one point, there's going to be at least a 17-point lead for Kansas City Chiefs. Alex, I'm inclined to agree with Brock. I, I, feel, like, I feel like this uh, game might get a little out of hand. See, I will disagree. I think this is going to be a lot closer. These are two fantastic teams, chock full of weapons, chock full of star power. Even the defense we don't talk about enough for San Francisco and for Kansas yeah, City. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're, they're both very, very good. Some even underrated 
somehow. I'm going to say <laughs> the max the max uh, 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 gap will be eight points Ooh. at any time in the game. So it's always going to be close, competitive. It's going to be a nail biter. So Alex, this is probably going to relate to what you just said. Will there be a lead change in the second half? I'm leaning no, but I believe the game is going to get out of hand. But it kind of sounds like maybe you think there could be a lead change here. Oh, absolutely. I think there's going to be a couple. I think we're going to see some of that Pat Mahomes magic where under two and a half, maybe under four minutes, there's going to be another lead change and maybe even two. I, I think there's going to be two lead changes in the last four minutes of the game. I almost flipped the desk over with the excitement <laughs> there. Uh, Brock, will there be a lead change in the second half of the game? I think it's going to I think it's going to be 10 seven going into half. And then uh, for Kansas City, and then I think Kansas City is just going to blow it from there. No, there will not be a lead change in the second half. Brock, will there be a defensive or special teams touchdown? So either an interception returned for a touchdown, fumble returned for a touchdown, kickoff or punt returned for a touchdown? I'm going to go with a fumble return for a touchdown, and I'm going to give it to Kansas City. I also think there's going to be a Kansas City defensive touchdown. I think they're going to get a late uh, interception off of uh, the quarterback Brock Purdy for the uh, San Francisco 49ers. Alex, defensive or special teams touchdown? No, I don't think there is because I think there's too much speed on both sides of the ball that even if there is an interception, they, they close the gap. They make sure that they don't give up the touchdowns as a result. It'll be, it may be a big play, but it won't be a touchdown. All right, Alex, I think you've somewhat tipped your hand on this, but I'll ask you outright, who wins the game, San Francisco or Kansas City? My heart is with San Francisco, but um, my my money is on Kansas City to, to pull ahead and win the game. Oh, dear. Here's where I worry that we're going to form. Uh, we're going to be all in agreement across the board on this, because I also think Kansas City is going to win the game. Brock, what about you? Kansas City is going to win the game by two touchdowns and a field goal. By the way, all three of us last year picked the Eagles to win the Super Bowl, and we were wrong on that. So maybe you guys might want to hedge against <laughs> our predictions here. Uh, all right, little fun one here. Brock, what color Gatorade gets poured on the winning coach? Almost no doubt in my opinion it's red. Both teams are red. Uh, they're going to pour red Gatorade. Yeah, it's either been red or orange every time uh, the Kansas City Chiefs have won the Super Bowl in the last couple of years. So I'm 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 on red here as well. Alex, what about you? I'm going off the board. Gonna go with yellow. Let's mix it up a bit. Oh, it's my favorite flavor of Gatorade, no. but that's a different conversation for a different time. <laughs> Alex, gonna punt you out of this conversation because you'll be back later in the hour to chime in on some of these things. So now I'm going one-on-one -on -one with Brock down the finish line here. Brock, Super Bowl snacks. What's your favorite at a party or bar for a big event? Can I only pick one? I'm only letting you pick one. Oh, potato skins. Potato skins is a doubt. good answer. Potato skins is a good answer. You dip that in sour cream? Absolutely. You know, there's a great bar not far from where you live that has incredible mozzarella sticks. That would be my answer. I love a mozzarella stick. It's versatile. You can eat that at a party, just carrying it around in your hands or in front of you at a table. I think a mozzarella stick is one of, like, the greatest bar snacks that exists. Yeah, I've been to that exact establishment you're talking about, and I know... Because my wife orders them every single time. They are yeah. delicious. Your wife's got good taste in men and in snacks. All right, Brock, halftime show. One question here on the halftime show. Usher is going to be the main act for the halftime show. Who do you think he brings out as a special guest? I'm going to go with nobody. I think Usher does it on his own. 
That's what Rihanna did last year. It kind of surprised me. Typically, there's so many uh, folks who pop by to be special guests. But, yeah, no, no option on that one. All right, Brock says nobody. Brock, thank you for this. Enjoy the game. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Lots of Super Bowl conversation coming your way here over the course of the next couple of minutes. So don't go anywhere because after the break, there's going to be a bit of a deeper chatter in regards to the entertainment side of the Super Bowl. But I'm also going to pester Laura about snacks and other stuff as well. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's take a quick pause from Super Bowl talk to bring Alex Smythe in for the weather story of the day. Alex, it is a gorgeous day in southern Ontario. Yeah, Dave, because it's not just uh, things heating up around the Super Bowl. Things are heating up around Ontario because it is a almost record-setting day and period of warmth in the province. So today, you'll see some areas of the province getting up to 15 degrees above seasonal conditions. And this is all due to that system that was impacting California with the floods and the destruction there. It has now since moved across the country. It's now in Ontario. It's also being fueled by warm winds that really helped to push the milder air across the province. So today, Windsor is gonna be a high of 16 degrees, Dave. London, not that far behind, high of 13. And here, where you are in Toronto, it's going to be a high of 12 degrees. So that's even extending not just in the southern portions of the province, it's going further north as well, because Sudbury and Ottawa are going to be a high of 7 degrees today. So that is really unexpected, really unheard of for the month of February. It's also going to be a relatively dry day today across the province. There will be rain moving in overnight into Saturday, but on the plus side for Saturday, it's also supposed to be similarly warm temperatures as we are experiencing today. So it's a bit of a reprieve before the more seasonable, cooler temperatures are set to return later on into February. So enjoy the warmth, enjoy the pleasant weather now. It's a little bit of a pause, not a break from winter, just a slight pause before the cooler temperatures, the more seasonable conditions come back into the area. Alex, it was too cold walking in this morning at 6 a.m. to wear my shorts. I, I forgot to pack them in my bag, so I'm stuck wearing my jeans all day. I'll live with that reality. I'll live with that reality. I'm no. fine with that. But I know at least a few people who decided to shave their legs yesterday so they could wear dresses and skirts today. So people are taking advantage of the pause. There's no doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and you got to uh, enjoy the moments while it lasts. The positive thing for me is the fact that, okay, 
the, the cooler weather is returning. I still want to see that cooler weather. I know, you know, people want to be finished with winter, but just on an overall picture, I still like to have a winter because there's a lot of impacts when you don't have the cooler weather. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. enjoy the nice sunshine and warm weather. Let's not get too bogged down into climate change. Yeah, enjoy cold. the warm weather today. No. Worry about the forest fires and drought later, Alex. Later we'll worry about that. Thanks, Alex. Let's yeah, no, get no. back the Super Bowl train. Let's get that back on track with some music from Usher on the way into entertainment. Laura Bain. Usher is going to be doing the halftime show at the Super Bowl this year. When they first made the announcement, I was a little unconvinced, but I've been uh, banging some Usher tracks today on my Spotify, kind of getting fired up, kind of getting in the mood here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, maybe like you, some like all of my Usher references are about 20 years old, but uh, <laughs> he does have a new album out today and, you know, he's a big artist. A lot of people know him, so I, I won't be watching. I don't have very strong feelings about the choice, but, you know, sure, why not? It'll, it's been 20 years. I cannot believe it's been 20 years since his jam, Yeah, was playing at nightclubs when I still used mm -hmm. to go to nightclubs. Like, like blows me away, uh, the passage of time and, and how that ends up working out. But, yeah, I, I've, I've gotten fired up. I, I'm ready for this halftime show. I, I think it has the potential to be good. A lot of his music is maybe a little too mellow for a halftime show, but I believe that's perhaps where a special guest is going to come into play. If you think about a song like Yeah, App that features Ludacris and Lil Jon and the East Side Boys. Ludacris does a ton of residencies in Las Vegas, specifically at the Dre nightclub. So I wonder if Luda is going to make his way up on stage on Sunday. And and Pharrell, uh, Usher himself has done a lot of collaborations over the year with producers like Pharrell and Diddy. So I wonder if Pharrell might pop on stage. Justin Timberlake, you talked about his new song a couple weeks ago. There's a connection, there's a connective tissue there to Usher and Pharrell as well. So I wonder if maybe there could be some Timberlake, could be some Ludacris. Who do you think he'll bring on as a special guest? Yeah, and I heard Brock say that he thinks he's not going to bring on a special guest. Well, interestingly, he's actually asked for a little bit of extra time. So normally the halftime shows are 13 minutes. Usher is getting 15 minutes. So that kind of leads me to think that he might be bringing someone out. I I really don't know, but I would maybe look to his new album and say, well, who were the collaborations on that? Um, there is a Jungkook song, uh, you know, at the end, a remix. I think that would really get people excited if he brought Jungkook. Uh, but, you know, Usher has said that this performance is going to pay tribute to the Black artists that came before him. So I would actually be surprised to see him bring Justin Timberlake out, or people have speculated about bringing Taylor Swift up on stage. I don't think that's going to happen. I think if he does bring uh, guests on, they will be Black artists. Okay, all right. And, and, like, possibly some legacy artists. I don't want to speculate about who that might be, but, you know, maybe artists that have inspired him even. 
Okay, all right. I see that I like too. Some more folks from the R and B scene. I, I could I could see that that could fly for sure. All right, Laura. Let's uh, get to the commercial side of Super Bowls. I I was pestering you yesterday about Super Bowl commercials, favorite Super Bowl commercials, and you're like, Dave, I I, I don't I don't care. But I'm gonna make you care <laughs> at least true. a little. I'm gonna make you care at least a little bit this morning, or at least slap me down, throw the question back in my face. Do you feel that Super Bowl commercials add something to the Super Bowl experience? maybe even after the game if you're not going to watch it live. You know, Dave, when you asked me yesterday, I couldn't have named a single Super Bowl commercial off the top of my head. I did watch some uh, reels this morning of best commercials of all time. And and yeah, some of them actually are familiar. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of uh, familiar to me. So um, I think they definitely do add to the, the Super Bowl. If I was watching it, I would probably be watching a little more for the ads. Although if you're into both, I don't know when you get up to go to the washroom. I guess you're kind of stuck. But um, yeah. Yeah, there was a funny one. Was it a? It was a Budweiser one where he uh, drank the beer and he was on a date, and then it made him breathe breathe fire. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I was entertained, but I I don't have strong memories of any particular Super Bowl. In in, in the in in the digital age, most of the ads end up premiering before the game on social or on YouTube. Laura, I just can't imagine somebody spending two point five million dollars for an airtime and spending whatever it costs to produce the commercial and then not letting the anticipation build for the actual debut of the commercial. I, I just don't understand why, why they get, why they get premiered before the game. Yeah. Um, me neither. I didn't realize that was a thing, but to me, it, it certainly seems like a, certainly seems like a spoiler. All right, back to some music. You cannot talk about football in 2024 without talking about Taylor Swift. song hits me in the feels every time. Laura Forbes estimates that T-Swift has generated an additional 33, so I got to get this number right. It's so stupendous that I got to get it right. $330 million in additional revenue for the NFL this year. Has her presence put football on your radar more significantly? Uh, no, it has not. Um, I do tend to kind of just blow by those headlines when I'm researching for the entertainment report. Um, but I, I think it has for a lot of Swifties. I actually just happened to catch a story this morning when I was waking up about, uh, you know, a, a Taylor Swift fan club here in Halifax that's holding a foot, uh, Super Bowl event at a hotel here. And, you know, I think that's uh, great, bringing in new audience, bringing people together, um, kind of despite what all the Brad's dads and chads yeah. think about it as they say yeah there's a lot of really irritating and frustrating chatter around it but i i do like that when people can be passionate about the things that they love and if it brings more people into the tent it brings more people into the tent and that's a good mm -hmm. thing all right let's talk about the national anthem country superstar reba mcintyre is performing the u.s national anthem laura you might have heard uh, brock alex and i doing some over under stuff in the last segment well the over under for length of the anthem is set at nine 90.5 seconds. Is she going over or under that with her performance of the Star Spangled Banner? Oh, uh, well, you know, I... <sighs> 
I'm not a connoisseur of Reba's music. I, I know it a little bit. I'm going to say that she's going to be pretty much on that time or a little bit under. She's not someone who tends to like be overly dramatic in her singing. She doesn't tend to hold her notes too much. So I think she'll keep it to the point. Yeah, the last couple of years, the over-under has been set closer to two minutes. So, so that line's already baked in that she's not really a stretcher. I think I think she's going to go over. I think sometimes you get caught in the moment, you hit that pause, and then you hit the big note at the end. So I, I'm, I'm going over on it. I'm going over, and uh, my, my betting accounts already reflect uh, that position. All right, Laura, one last note here on the snacking front. I kind of get the impression you're not going to be taking the game in on Sunday, but the generalized question still stands stands here what's your favorite snack at a party or a bar for a big event okay um so i I think like for if we're talking an intimate party i'm gonna say decadent nachos because that's kind of my go-to like if it's gonna just be with a couple of people i like to make nachos and get some uh, some blue cheese on there some barbecue sauce some pickles are really good pineapple maybe not all those things all together but um like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you have to you have to think about your flavor profiles, but some nice decadent nachos. If I'm at a big group event, I'm going to maybe say some hot appetizers, like some jalapeno poppers or maybe a hot artichoke dip, something that's easy to just grab and go and kind of load up your paper plate with. Handheld, right? That that even even when you're at a place where you might be at a table, the idea of handheld matters. So you're not reaching across the table over and over and over again. Like even nachos, if there were six people at a table, you might knock over somebody's glass or knock over somebody's pint as you're reaching across to grab those nachos. That's my thought with nachos. You know, you have to kind of think about the like toppings to chip ratio. When you have a a big setting, like too many people, that can kind it can kind of get a little bit messy. So that's why I say that's more for the the intimate party. I went to a Super Bowl party in Las Vegas in 2012, and it was all you can eat, but it was very limited in what was available for all you could eat. It was just hot dogs, chili, and buns, and uh, it was it was an utter mess, an utter utter mess. Well, there's like three choices there. There's hot dogs, there's chili, and then there's chili dogs, I guess. (laughs) And it was a mess. (laughs) Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend and have a great week next week. Thanks, Dave. Enjoy the enjoy the Super Bowl. Oh, I think you can tell that I will. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, the Super Bowl conversation continues a little bit more on the commercials, a little bit more on entertainment, and a few more guesses about what the snack of choice might be. Take us to commercial T-Swift. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. baby let's continue the super bowl talk with nazreen ramya and alex starting with commercials bud light is bringing someone magic to the super bowl this weekend with a new commercial here's a snippet of what you can expect a group of friends are watching the super bowl in a basement one of the friends walks over to a shaky refrigerator he opens the door to find a cold and glowing bottle of bud light he pops the cap off Instantly, a man with a moustache and sunglasses appears. Things 
get magical when the man starts granting wishes to the friends in the basement. Are you? The Bud Light Genie? Yeah. So we get wishes? It's my thing. Gimme. 80s metal hair. Yes. Filthy rich. So filthy. Invisible? Predictable. Giant bicep. Big one. A sweet ride. <laughs> oh, I wish for giant biceps as well. All right, let's bring in Alex Smythe, Nazreen Abdel, Majid, and, and Ramya Amuthan to talk all about things Super Bowl beginning with commercials. Ramya, what's your favorite Super Bowl commercial ever? Oh, man, I didn't actually want to answer this one because I don't have a favorite Super Bowl commercial ever. I don't even think that I remember enough of the Super Bowl commercials of this year, and we talked about them yesterday. Okay, then just leave it there. Just say pass. If you guys want to pass Pass. on these questions, say pass. Oh, let's go, yeah. Nizreen, favorite Super Bowl commercial ever. Oh, I will answer this. I loved the Snickers commercials with, uh, with uh, You're Not You When You're Hungry. Oh, man. And my favorite one was with Betty White. She was so cute in that commercial. Uh, they're always hilarious. Okay, good answer. Good answer. Alex Smythe, I love the E-Trade commercial from 1999 with the cat herder, a guy who had a cat ranch, a, a rancher of cats. It had nothing to do with buying or selling stocks. It just had to do with the experience of herding cats, and it was amazing. Alex, favorite Super Bowl commercial ever. Yeah, so mine are along the lines of this, Reen. I I'm... They're basically tied. There's two of them. They're very similar. One is the Reebok commercial featuring Terry Tate, the office linebacker. And it was just basically in an office setting, tackling people who weren't getting deadlines done. And they're just chasing, being chased around by an imposing like 250, 60 pound linebacker around the office. Hilarious. The other one, very similar. FanDuel did it like a couple years ago where they had James Harrison, another intimidating, ferocious middle linebacker going to tackle this guy who wanted to get in the game with FanDuel. Another hilarious uh, commercial both for the same reason of being people being chased around by middle linebackers trying to tackle them. Physical comedy always works. Physical mm-hmm. comedy always works. Uh, Nazreen, do you feel like the Super Bowl ads give you something more in the Super Bowl experience? I know you're not the biggest football fan on the planet. I feel like uh, they're always memorable to me. You know, they always stand out rather than other commercials, like a uh, comparison to other commercials. So, um, you know, and, and the fact that a lot of them, like, you know, bring up the Super Bowl in the commercials just gets me excited about the event, even though I'm not a big <laughs> Super Bowl fan. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> you feel like you're part of it. You know what I mean? You feel like you're you're getting excited about the, the Super Bowl. So, I, I don't know. It just... It makes me tingle inside because I'm like, you know, everybody's just so excited about the whole thing. So it makes me part of it. Yeah, it lives. It's a different way for the mm-hmm. event to live. All right, here's sort of the bigger, broader question. The most expensive ad this year is costing $2.5 million to air, let alone what it costs to produce and ideate the ads. But here's the thing, guys. Most of the ads are premiering before the game, which, Alex, I believe is preposterous. Like, like how do you feel about these ads end up premiering but before they're even hitting the air. I think it's a ridiculous waste of money if that's what you're doing. 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's always the best strategy. But what's more fascinating, Dave, is there are a lot of tra uh, trailers or teasers to commercials that are being released. Like, there are several commercials out there that kind of tease or tip their hand yeah. on what a, a Super Bowl ad's going to be. And they're only like 15 seconds. So you know there's going to be a two-minute ad that is going to debut during the Super Bowl. So they kind of double dip a bit. You know, they build the anticipation of, like, there was the Victoria and David Beckham Uber Eats commercial. You you have a fifteen yes. minute a uh, fifteen second clip, but you know there's going to be a bigger longer uh, commercial during the Super Bowl, and they say at the end, tune in like uh, February eleventh to see the full commercial. So it can work, but when you just release the full commercial, I'm not a fan of it before the Super Bowl. Nizreen, I heard the exclamations and enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw a teaser of the Uber Eats commercial uh, with uh, Jennifer Aniston and uh, mm -hmm. David Schwimmer having a reunion. But I saw a little teaser on YouTube, but when I looked it up online, I saw the full thing and it was it was amazing. At the same time, though, I don't feel like it's the same if you debut it before the Super Bowl. It's yeah. not a Super Bowl commercial. Surprise me. Before. Yeah, surprise, surprise me, yeah. darn it. Uh, Ramya, I, I heard you exclaiming about a couple of these previews. It kind of sounds like maybe that's what's catching your Super Bowl advertisement attention. Well, yeah, it's a little absurd, though. I agree with you guys that we're now because we already know how, what kind of a cultural phenomenon these Super Bowl ads are, what top dollar people are paying, not just for the commercial to actually air uh, on the Super Bowl or during the Super Bowl, but where, where exactly the position. And this is what you hear about every year, right? Like who's going to do this and that. Now we got trailers. But as Nasreen says, it. It's not necessarily just the trailer uh, because you could just go online and find the thing and find the descriptions and find exactly what you need to know about it. But I do kind of enjoy it nonetheless, because like you said, with the with um, the friends homage, like Jennifer Aniston and mm -hmm. friends, you're kind of pulling in people from all over the place into the Super Bowl, which is obviously, you know that's what they want to do right yeah. even if you're not necessarily there for the game yeah get that buzz get that buzz all right guys we got to move with a little bit of pace and speed here but usher doing the halftime show i was lukewarm when it was first announced but i'm officially enthused about it ramya how do you feel about usher doing the halftime show I love Usher. I think that he I think of him now as a throwback, though, and not as a current artist. So yeah. I think that this is the perfect time for him to be appearing at the Super Bowl, doing his thing, um, because I, I love the kind of nostalgia that people who grew up with Usher like myself are going to have. I'm not going to lie, though. I kept forgetting that it's Usher, like the hype around Usher <laughs> for halftime show wasn't as bad big as you know former years when you knew who it was going to be rihanna like right La last rihanna. year everybody yeah. knew it was going to be yeah. rihanna like we were exactly. all yoked up and jacked up for uh -huh. rihanna this is more like reminder usher's coming on N oh right nizreen usher usher a town down or a town up uh a town up i i mean <laughs> i think i think the the fact that like i i agree with ramya uh, when i think of usher i think about like the nostalgic old time Usher. Um, I know he has a new album coming home or something like that, uh, but I haven't heard it yet. And I wonder if he's going to play a lot of that album. Ugh, pass, uh, pass. Yeah, so yeah, I, 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 I didn't even give it a I listen. I was just like, no, I miss the old Usher regardless. <laughs> Alex, Usher doing the halftime show. Uh, I, I think a decade too late or a year too early. I, I would do this a year what? after he comes out with with the new album to build up the excitement again. So that's I that's agree. how I view it. Cause so yeah, yeah. I don't know. I still think it's gonna be nostalgia. 
I, I, I really hope it's the hits. Although he doesn't have a lot of these, like, pump-you-up hits. Like, a lot of his stuff tends to be a little bit more mellow and romantic. There's mm. really only a couple that are sort of those big crossover hits, so uh, it can be a little bit tricky. But I do believe that's why he's going to bring in special guests. I really feel like my guy Ludacris is finally going to end up on the Super Bowl halftime show. So that's my prediction, Alex. I believe Ludacris will be at least one of the special guests out there. Yeah, and I'm going to, I think so as well. And I'm going to add Little John. And I think both of them are going to be oh, there man. either right from the beginning or the second song. Like they are going to be there very early on and there for most of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Nazreen, special guest. I was going to say Little John because all I can think of is. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that song when okay. uh, Little John features in it. So, banger. <laughs> uh, Ramya, who do you think is going to be the uh, special guest? Well, even if neither of those two come on now, I'll just remember this uh, roundtable conversation through the halftime show because it was super entertaining. <laughs> but I do hope Luda makes it. Dave, that would be sick. He does. Yeah. He does a regular residency at the Dre nightclub in Las Vegas. So, uh, you know, they didn't get him in Atlanta a couple years ago. But if they can get him out here uh, during this Super Bowl time halftime show, I will be so, so happy. But mm-hmm. I did also mention Justin Timberlake uh, earlier in the hour. I, he's got a new album out himself. There's a relationship with Pharrell Williams. I think there could be something there. Okay, the Taylor Swift side of this conversation. Again, pace and speed on this, Ramya. But it's estimated that Taylor Swift has generated over $300 million in extra revenue for the NFL this year. Has her presence put football any more on your radar? Uh, yeah, I'd say so, because every other week when we have Corinne Van Dusen coming on for entertainment, <laughs> uh, we literally at talk football now because of Taylor Swift and all this about, is she going to make it? Is she not for halftime? Uh, sorry, not for halftime, for the Super Bowl. And uh, for some reason, my news feed is full of Taylor Swift now and this football stuff. It's ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm, I'm finding it very entertaining. It's my fault, because every time you come to the office, I badger you about you Taylor Swift. So it's in your algorithm TikTok's now. Nazreen, what about you? Has T-Swift put the NFL more on your radar? It really did not. I did not notice that. Um, I don't know why, but no, I didn't. Alex, I'm not asking you this question because yeah, football was already fair. very much on your radar. <laughs> you didn't need Taylor Swift <laughs> to bring you to the, the sport. at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, let's end up. Let's end on the food note. I love talking about food as a wrapping up note. Super Bowl snacks. Alex you're the foodie. What's your favorite snack at a party or bar for a big event? Jalapeno poppers, Dave. It, it, it satisfies all the things. You talked about the handheld nature of it. Had to spice, has to cheese. I'm drooling just thinking about it now. Versatile, delicious. Good answer. I've been hammering my mm-hmm. local bar to add mozzarella sticks to the menu for a while now. They're not going to do it. So I think it's going to be a chicken wing and nacho kind of night for me. Nazreen, Favorite snack at a party or bar for a big event? You can never go wrong with chicken wings. Yeah, you've 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 said you've mentioned that before. The chicken wings are a big yeah, time. Yeah, I'm obsessed. A big as time you thing for Nazarene. Yeah. Honey garlic. <laughs> honey, honey garlic. Lemon pepper. Oh, kid, okay, just name all the flavors then, Nazarene. I'll, yeah, I'll give you the menu. Read off all 100. <laughs> Ramya, I'm gonna let you in on something here. Bruce McLarian in our control room and I have a bet on what your answer is going to be to this question. Your favorite what? snack at a party or bar for a big event. Okay, I was going to say chicken wings or nachos. Those are the two big things. Um, And I don't 
I don't necessarily do anything other than that. I guess if people have like French fries or pizza, cool. But it's always like a finger food and it's usually chicken wings or nachos. What was your bet on? So Bruce Beclarian was convinced that you were going to say chili. He was convinced chili. that you were going to say chili. And I said, there's no way she's going to say chili. Yeah. There's no way. Chili is like the, the go-to. And most people do chili around Super Bowl, right? But I don't, I don't put in the work to make the chili. So that's the only issue. Oh, so now it sounds like you're kind of hedging your answer. Now maybe Bruce and I are both not going to win the bet. I, it's not chili for me. Okay. So sorry, Bruce. You sorry, me, Bruce. Sorry, Bruce. You owe me an adult <laughs> beverage. Uh, <laughs> Nazreen, Alex, have an awesome weekend. Have a great week next week. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet. You got to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time. I will. We're talking about Google's latest AI video generator. It can render cute animals in implausible situations. That sounds kind of adorable. John Beeler is going to tell us more on the app update. Also, uh, of course, the Super Bowl talk is going to be all over the sports update with um, yeah, Brock Richardson. And on the Chatty Bookshelf, Ryan Huey is telling us about fantasy novels and what they, why they've taken off in the last four years. This is also kind of a lead up to our uh, chat on AMI audiobook review this weekend on romanticy, that genre <laughs> of romance plus fantasy, and why that's taken off. But we have the answer for you. It's TikTok. Laying a couple breadcrumbs there. I like that. Rumya, have mm -hmm. an awesome weekend. Great week. Talk to you when I'm back from vacation. Okay. Enjoy your week off. That is Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Coming up next, it's White Cane Week. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access recommends a list of memoirs about living with vision loss. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's White Cane Week, and there are a whole bunch of memoirs that explore the lived experience of living with vision loss. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access has a couple of featured selections to point you towards. Karen is the communications manager at SELA. Hey, good morning, Karen. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. Happy Friday, right before I go on vacation. So you're catching me in a particularly good mood. Uh, Karen, let's talk about a few of these memoirs, starting with Now I See You, a memoir by Nicole C. Kerr. So Nicole is a nonfiction uh, professor at Columbia University and at NYU, and she's written this book about losing her sight. So when she's 19 years old, uh, her biggest concern is whether what she's going to major in at school. And then she heads to the doctor's office and she gets a life-changing diagnosis that she's going blind, courtesy of uh, reginitis pigmentosa. And so she only has about a decade left before she loses her sight. So instead of sort of preparing herself, as the doctor suggests, she sort of takes a carpe diem approach and she goes and lives her best life. She joins a circus school. She tears through a series of boyfriends. She travels the world. She finishes a drama degree at Yale and goes looking for acting jobs in California and New York. And through all of these adventures, she keeps her vision loss a secret 
but then she settles down. She becomes a mother, just a few years of sort of losing her sight completely. And she changes her, her life. She gives up sort of the recklessness in order to relish every moment with her kids. But she's still keeping her vision loss a secret. And then she has a terrible scare where she couldn't find her doctor. And she realizes that this is not safe for her or for her kids. And so she starts to ask for help from her friends and from her family and from a state training program. And she does this because she knows her kids will be safer. So she moves in this moment, particularly, but throughout the book from denial to acceptance, from fear into affirmation that she can live with courage and honesty and a willingness to embrace the challenges that we all face. This book is hilarious. It's very, very funny. I'll read you a little quick quote. It says, um, as a rule of thumb, the secretly blind should avoid all activities in which they're required to glue objects onto their faces. This includes fake eyelashes. At best, you'll stick them on asymmetrically. At worst, you'll land them in the middle between your eyes and you'll look like you're being attacked by mutant spiders. I paraphrase it. But anyway, she's hilariously funny. Um, and I think this is a really great book about refusing to sort of cower at life's curveballs, about settling into to life or to love rather to sort of triumph over fear um and really learning about self-acceptance it's a great great book and it's it's uh it's very funny so i definitely recommend this one this next one also has a sense of adventure a sense of the world how a blind man became history's greatest traveler by jason roberts so this book I picked for you, uh, this was a national bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in the States. It's a biography of a man named James Holman who lived from 1786 to 1857. And we meet him when he's serving as a third lieutenant aboard a Royal Navy ship off the coast of America, North America. Um, his shift is often outside at nighttime and he's, you know, in standing in chilling, bone chilling weather. After several years of service, he develops rheumatism, and then that later leads to his losing his sight in 1811. And then by 1813, he's attending the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, first as a student of literature, and then he switches to medicine. He heads to the south of France and Italy for his health, and he takes with him a walking stick, which is a cane with a metal tip, and he's learned to tap and navigate to himself by the echoing that it makes. So we get to know Holman um, not only personally, but what it was like to lose your sight at that time and how uh, challenging travel was in generally, but just also with him being blind, there's just this added component. Uh, his best friend and sometimes travel companion is deaf. So the two of them have quite the set of adventures. He funds his travel thanks to a pension from the Navy and publishing his travel writing, which he wrote on a device called a noctograph, which I had to go look up. Uh, and so we get to see glimpses of his writing in this memoir. Um, he ends up circumnavigating the globe despite a uh, run-in with the Russian czar at the time. He fought the slave trade in Africa. He survived frozen captivity in Siberia. He hunts elephants in Ceylon and helps chart the Australian outback. This man had an incredible life. Uh, and at the end, his travels told no less than a quarter million miles. So it's just a phenomenal wow. story to read. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, we really get a sense of place and time uh, with this book and also just the ability to to go and live a life like what a life he lived really incredible book to travel a quarter of million a quarter of a million miles before the invention of even the steamship engine like that that mm -hmm. is unbelievable unbelievable okay yeah. i can i can see why maybe you picked that one for me um <laughs> all right <laughs> let's <clears throat> let's uh, switch over to the beauty of dusk on vision lost and found by frank bruni 
So folks may know Frank Bruni. He was um, a Washington, D.C. journalist uh, from December into May 2002. Um, so he was... Uh, assigned to George Bush and he covered his campaign and then he wrote a book about George Bush. He's got about 18 books published. Uh, and then one morning in late 2017, he wakes up with some strangely blurred vision. He figures he's just got something in his eye, uh, but it doesn't go away. So he goes to see the doctor and finds out that he's had a rare stroke that's cut off blood to one of his optic nerves. And so he's functionally blind in that eye forever. And he learns that he um, has the possibility of losing his sight altogether. And so this sort of takes him to the point of... Um, really rethinking how he's going to live his life. He, the journey is both what it, in medical terms, so he's understanding what's happening to his body, but also a deeper and more spiritual reckoning with where he wants to, to go with his life, what his priorities are, how he wants to live going forward. And he uses not only his own sort of personal reflections, but he reaches into um, his circle and he talks to people who've experienced disability of one sort or another and how they go on to live happy lives maybe because of rather than in spite of um it forcing them to change direction so it's a really poignant really probing quite uplifting book um about overcoming limits and living the life that we choose it's really about our ability to change and to emphasize uh to be able to treat ourselves and others with kindness and understanding the limits that we all have to to face. So a really excellent book. This is the most recently published on my list. It was uh, published in 2022. So uh, a more recent book. Karen, there's not enough time to go into detail of these two self-published books that you want to talk about. I'm going to read out the titles here, but then I want you to take sort of 30 seconds to reflect on the significance of self-publishing and how that's changing the industry. So the two books that you wanted to put a spotlight on here are Recollections, Rex and Reflections, My Journey from Daylight Through Darkness and Beyond by Edward Legg, and Blind Man's Bluff, a memoir by James Tate Hill. Again, Karen, not enough time to talk about these two titles specifically, but I think the notion of being able to self-publish in the modern literature world is worthy of about 60 seconds of discussion here. So typically we have not included self-published books and works in our collection, but um, as the that sort of uh, technological element has advanced and there's more support for self-published authors, the quality of the books has really increased. And it's a it's a really excellent way for us to include uh, own stories in, in our collection. Um, there is a, a limited market for stories about people with disabilities uh, from in the publishing world, just because it's so cutthroat. So this allows us to get some really insightful books into our collection that people can see themselves in and relate to, um, which is really important for us as a specialty library. Authentic storytelling at its core. Hey, Karen, thank you for this. You always present an amazing reading list uh, whenever we chat every two Fridays, and I can't keep up. You fill it up too fast for me. But have yourself a lovely weekend. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, have a great vacation. Oh, thank you very much, Karen. I will. I'm not going anywhere. Staying in Toronto, doing a staycation for the first time in my existence living in Toronto. Every time I get time off, I get the heck out of here. But uh, next week, going to try to grapple with the city in earnest. Got uh, plans to maybe go to a Raptors game. The Pacers are in town next Wednesday. You heard Laura Bain talking about Juno-nominated Charlotte uh, Carden, the singer who's going to be at Massey Hall next Thursday. So I, I've got some, I've got some plans. I got some plans for my week off that are going to involve me not just wallowing in misery in my own apartment, which is sort of my default mode. 
That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Alex Smythe filling in for me on Monday. He'll be talking to Marco Pasqua about a new web browser designed with accessibility and the experience of people with disabilities in mind right from the start. The show starts at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. And like you should do every single Friday, thank the people that put you into a position to succeed. And that's what the folks do behind the scenes at this show. So let's say it together. Roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Muthan, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live productions, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.